0: Uh, Today's a special day in the life of the church. We have the senior recognition day, and also we have uh, trade a pastor day. Our pastor's over across the river preaching, and the preacher over there is going to be here at 9:30 and 11. And when he comes, when Brother Vincent comes at 9:30, he's going to bring his own special sermon, and that's what's in your bulletin: his text and his title. So I'm going to give you a different text and a different title for our message this morning, and it's in the book of Acts. Well, I'm going to continue right along with the story we've been going on so far, looking at the early church. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Acts 17. If you do not have um, your scripture with you, shame on you, but you can find a pew Bible. And I... I think I may have remembered, it's 926, page 926. If you can't look it up yourself, you've got to go to Vacation Bible School, Sword Drill, where you learn to look Scriptures up in a hurry. Uh, Sword Drill was the only game that I can think of in my life I ever cheated in. I was a pretty straight arrow as a kid. I was a rule keeper and I tried to obey. Besides, I was a believer from the time I was five, so I knew better. But I cheated in sword drill, because if you'll remember, those of you who went to vacation Bible school in the 50s, 60s, and maybe into the 70s, you remember the the sword drill. You remember the drill. The drill was that the leader, the teacher, would call out a passage, John 3.16. The first person to find it would stand and read it. And and you would uh, stand until someone beat you the next time, and you would keep that going until you finally had a champion. Well, as the years went by, I learned more and more Scripture. Memorized it, which meant that most of the passages that were called out were familiar passages, you know. So I knew them. You know, Uh, Matthew 7 7, ask and you shall receive. So I would immediately stand up and flop my Bible open anywhere, as long as it was close, and quote the scripture. And that was cheating. And it's been on my conscience ever since. And I've confessed it two or three times. Most people don't feel sorry for me. They think that's one of the most vicious things I've ever heard. Well, today we come to an incredible passage of Scripture. We're in Acts 17. There are about 20-something speeches or sermons that are given to us in the book of Acts by the writer Luke. They are little synopses, little short abbreviated outlines of those sermons, no doubt. And uh, some are by Peter, Stephen, uh, James, and most of them are from the Apostle Paul. And that's what we have today. We have Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are on their journey. We looked last week at the Macedonian call, how that they went over when the man pleaded for them to come and the The Holy Spirit had forbid them to go into Ephesus, to go to Bithynia. And then at Troas, He called them by way of a vision over into Macedonia. They went to Philippi. A few weeks ago, we looked at the story in Philippi, the converts there, the Philippian jailer, the young girl possessed of the devil, and then also Lydia, the seller of purple. And then now we've had Paul and Silas, and of course Luke had joined them at Troas, and Timothy had joined them earlier, and they have come now across Macedonia, Thessalonica, Berea, and there's a lot of trouble and Paul has been sort of um, smuggled quickly, he and Luke first, out of um, Berea and a group accompanied Paul down to the southern province, Achaia, to the city of Athens. Paul now comes to Athens. He leaves instructions for... uh, Timothy and Silas, to join him shortly when they can get there. But he's now in Athens, and this is maybe the only time in the Bible we find that Paul was kind of sightseeing. He has come to the great city of Athens, and he's just taken in by everything he sees. It's just incredible. It's a beautiful city. The glory that was Athens is is already 500 years old. There are other great cities in the empire that have become cultural and intellectual centers that have equaled Athens over the last few centuries, including Alexandria in Egypt, including Pergamum in Asia, and even Paul's hometown where he was raised. Tarsus was a great intellectual and cultural center, but nothing like Athens. Even though it didn't have the glory that it had back five centuries before Christ, here in the first century it still had the remnants of great glory. And it still had the parties and the schools of all of the Athenian and the Greek philosophers. And it still had the magnificent temples to all the Pantheon, the gods of of all the Greeks. And it had uh, the the teachers, many of the teachers who were from other places like Cyprus and Taurus and even Rome had all come to Athens to, to study and to be a part of the cultural and intellectual vibe that was in that city. And Paul's there. And Paul is not unaware of where he is. Paul pretty much knows the Greek philosophical tradition. He's well aware of it. And he's looking around and he's seeing everything that's there. And I'm going to read the narrative and really pay close attention to the narrative because I'm going to pull things out of the narrative. So I want the Bible open on your lap for the next 20 minutes and pull things out of the narrative where you can go back and see for yourself. Because as I said, this is a synopsis sermon, so Paul's just hitting high places as we go along. And I think we're going to be surprised at how many high places he actually hits. So here's the, here the narrative. Verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue and with the Jews and the devout persons, For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious." since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel for their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Paul's in Athens. He's enjoying the tour, except for one thing, his Hebrew conscience is offended at every turn of his head, because there are nothing but idols, nothing but shrines and temples, to all imaginable gods. And the first commandment keeps throbbing through his head. I shall have no other gods before me. No gods in my face. No gods that are even recognized as gods, said the Lord God Almighty to Moses. I shall not make unto thee any graven image. The second commandment. All we have here is one statue, one shrine, one emblem, one symbol after another. Paul is offended He's astonished, he's perplexed. Mainly, he's provoked. There's something about zeal for the house of the Lord that will provoke a man when he hears and sees God Almighty offended and His commandments blatantly disobeyed and God rebuked and God scorned. But even worse, God ignored. He saw an idol that said, to the unknown God. That's all Paul needed. He said, literally the word is agnostic. It's translated ignorance. But it's the word that we get our word agnostic from. Not knowing. Claiming not to know. It seemed as a little bright spot in Paul's mind that these people may have had just a little bit of a glimmer of doubt. That maybe then all the gods that they had recognized that they had worshipped and served and sacrificed, there may still be this Other God, this unknown God, maybe a remote God, a God that is far away, that is unapproachable, a transcendent God, a God above the gods. The conscience and the heart of man, deep down, Paul will tell us later as he writes Romans, that there is this knowledge of God that men do not want to retain, but they want to suppress it. They want to push it down. They want to put it in a corner. They want to put a curtain over it. They want to veil it, and they will disguise it with countless words of men's wisdom. And that's essentially what the Greek philosophers had done throughout the years. One of the interesting things to me in the passage, I've got to mention it, we've noticed how Paul always went to the synagogue. In every city that had a synagogue, Paul would go to the synagogue, and as a rabbi, he would be invited to read the Scriptures and speak, and he would preach Christ, and he would prove that Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified carpenter who had been raised from the dead, was in fact this very Messiah that these Jews in the synagogue had been waiting for, for generations. And he does it in Athens as well. It says he reasoned with them. But Paul takes his missionary and evangelistic efforts, his gospel preaching about Christ crucified and risen, he takes it to another place. He takes it to the agora, the marketplace. That may be where we need to think about our missions. It's enough to preach within these four walls, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ, the Son of God, needs to be lifted up in the marketplace, in the world of everyday work. And the only way you are going to get it there is not somebody like me walking in with a black robe behind a big old huge wooden pulpit But the way we're going to get the Gospel into the Agora, into the marketplace, is for you. Each one of you in your shirt sleeves, and in your your, uh, lab coats, and in your Armani suits, and your St. John dresses, take it everywhere. Everywhere. To everyone. Now an interesting thing happened here in Athens. They had people in the marketplace that was hearing Paul preached, and it was strong preaching. The Bible says he was literally evangelizing, preaching the gospel that Jesus had risen from the dead. And while they could follow Paul in many ways, certainly anything he said along the lines of ethics and morals, but when he talked about God and the resurrection of Christ and some of these other topics, they began to realize that he might be a purveyor of strange doctrines and he might be in... A, preaching strange deities. And that was one thing the Greeks were always a little bit upset, is someone that would preach a foreign divinity. That's how they got Socrates. He had preached a foreign divinity in Athens. So they had assembled and had been in place now for a couple of centuries, kind of a court, kind of a, a, a panel, a forum, that would listen to anyone that was questioned in their preaching, and their content, and their teaching, and see if it sort of fit into what they could culturally accept. See if it was politically correct to be proclaimed in the marketplace. There was kind of a a governing board. And this was the Areopagus, Mars Hill. This was the, the men, the philosophers. It wasn't that they were trying to have a court to determine legality or illegality as much as it was acceptability. The worst thing that you could do in Athens in the ancient day was to corrupt the thinking of the young people. That's another charge they brought against Socrates, that he was corrupting the youth of Athens. So there was a place where you could kind of evaluate. First of all, try to understand what someone was preaching or teaching, and then give some assessment of it, how the people should receive it. It was kind of an opinion makers, kind of the men that would write the editorial columns. And these were the learned men, the wise men, quite often magistrates when they would serve their term in some public office, if they had some means of, uh, of uh, support beyond that, which most of them did, they were wealthy, they would serve on this group. So it was a place where they brought Paul and they harangued him before this, this tribunal, as it were, to hear his doctrine, and they, they complained that they didn't understand exactly what he was saying. as some strange things to our ears, and maybe we need to hear this. Well, these men were veterans at hearing novelties. In fact, most of them loved nothing more than just to hear something new, a new slant, a new idea, a new perspective. And they were listening for that, and they were, had keen ears for that. And so here we have Paul's address to them. And one of the things that impresses me about Paul's address, and as I summarize it here just in a few minutes, I want you to notice that there was nothing Greek about it. There was nothing philosophical and Hellenistic about it. Paul was not looking to find common ground with pagan thought. What he did instead was to declare the revelated revealed God of Holy Hebrew Scripture. And he starts out, he said, men of Athens, he says, I perceive you're very religious. The word means superstitious. I know you're up on your religious notions. But let me tell you what I observed when I passed by is you had the objects of worship and you have this unknown God, this God that is the God to your agnosticism, the God you don't know about. This is the God I'm going to talk to you about. The unrevealed God, the unknown God, has revealed Himself and made Himself known. And He does it, first of all, in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. He's already created the heavens and the earth. And that's what He says here. He is the God of creation. And that creation speaks to His eternal power and His Godhead his deity. There's no denying that there is a supreme being who is powerful and intelligent. And the creation screams that message day and night. And there's no reason to be ignorant of such a deity and his existence. And he goes on to talk about the matters of the transcendent God that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who has given life to everyone. He doesn't go into the creation story here, but He makes two allusions to it. He is the God that created of all the nations, all the families, all the earth, one man, Adam. He does not have a cyclical or an evolutionary view of origins and cosmogony. Paul has the biblical view, the Genesis 1, 2, and 3 view. And that is that there is one original progenitor to all of humanity. And what we think of as race is not really race. It's ethnicity, it's families, it's nations, it's clans. And we are all descended from the one man who was made in the image of God. And we're all included in one mass of humanity. And sadly, it is the same one man who bore the image of God, Adam, who now becomes the original sinner in his disobedience to God. And as by one man, sin entered the world. Paul is giving him the biblical view, the first chapters of Genesis. And then he talks about how this God is the Lord and the sovereign over all the universe, and He does not live in these little temples made with hands. This was one of the major points that Israel had to come to see, that God was transcendent over even the temple where the Spirit of God dwelled in the Holy of Holies was only a dwelling place where God could meet His people. It was not the totality of the immensity of God, that God was not served by human hands, There's massive rituals going on in all these temples all the time, sacrifices. In fact, we get down to Corinth, it's there too. Paul will later talk about all this massive amount of of, of animal sacrifice that brings this large amount of meat, good quality meat, to the marketplace. But God doesn't need any of that. God is not served. He doesn't need us to keep Him up. We, We do not carve Him with our hands and we do not control Him with our hands. Most of our petitions are to try to somehow harness God into the servant that we need to fetch and meet that which we need by the hour. This is not the view, this is the transcendent God. God has fixed all. He's fixed the history, time, he's fixed space and geography. God has set it all up for the accomplishing of His own purpose. The earth upon which we live is the theater of God's manifestation in God's work. So Paul continues just to lay it out there. And he says that there's a couple of things that need to happen. One is that man should be seeking God and looking for Him. Literally groping for Him that they may find Him. Jesus... Always, Jesus said that the Father always seeks those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Their critique of the worship of the Greeks was the whole critique of the way we come to God. The truth is that we have declared an agnosticism. We have suppressed the truth. And God goes seeking us. He comes pleading and and wooing us to Him by His Spirit. We must have God moving toward us. And then it's interesting that the closest thing he gets to something philosophical is he quotes a couple of Greek poets. And one of them says, In Him we live and move and have our being. Those are the great philosophical questions. Live, the whole question of life. The whole question of the BIOS and the Zoe, the, the, the notion of life on earth and where life comes from and how life is perpetuated and, and the, the great calamity of the end of life. And then how we move. This is motion. This is change. The philosophers had theories of motion and change and how of our being. This is ontology, the very science of, of being and the essence of who we are and why we're here and what does it mean to exist? But he says that all of the times of this deliberate ignorance of men not seeking God, of men ignoring God, of men rising, raising up a shrine to the unknown God, these days of ignorance, and it's the same word, these days of ignorance, these days of agnosticism, God passed by. He let it go. This is the forbearance of God. This is the mercy of God. This is the long-suffering of God. God lets us live in our ignorance and in our defiance of Him for so long. Giving us ample time to come to our senses, to to somehow by wisdom find out God. And we find instead that He is past understanding and the requirement that God makes now is God's commanded all people everywhere to repent. (laughs) repentance turn from yourself your self-seeking your self-analysis Socrates had set this whole thing up he was the progenitor at least it was claimed by the Stoics and you remember he told us know thyself the unexamined life is not worth living turn from that Elevation of yourself to God, to Christ. And as I conclude, I'll note two things. God has fixed a day and appointed a man. That's what the text says. God has fixed a day. It's a judgment day. It's a last day. It's a day of reckoning. It's a day in which we will all give an account before the Lord. It's a day after which there is eternity. It is a day before which there's wide open season for coming to Christ. The day of judgment, the day of reckoning is fixed. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. God has fixed a day, but here's the gospel: He has appointed a man. This man He's appointed has been given all authority. He's the judge, but He's the Savior. This man is Jesus. This man was crucified for your sins. He paid the penalty of all of your agnosticism, all of your self-centeredness, all of your waywardness, all of your idolatry. And He rose from the dead. There's parallel and cross-pollinization and adverse relationship between and among all the schools of Greek thought, but most of them kind of held one notion in common, and that was something about the immortality of the soul. That is, that somehow we would escape the flesh and we would live somehow with some kind of existence. And Paul brought this group right back to the reality that everything God's done since the day He scooped up a handful of mud and created Adam, everything has to do with the flesh. God the Son came in the flesh. And when He rose, He rose in the body, in the flesh. And we never escape the flesh. The flesh must always live. The body must live in order to bear the image of God. And in as far as we are conformed to Christ, the Son of God, we bear that image of God And one day it'll be glorified, it'll be... That was the thing that got them. When they heard him talk about the Anastasis, the resurrection, that was just about all they could handle. And they had three reactions. Some of them said, this most ridiculous thing we've ever heard, no matter what this man says, we love new stuff, but this idea of a bodily resurrection of a crucified carpenter is just not going to cut it. This man is obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. This is strange, and this doesn't make sense, and this is fanciful. And he was mocked They made fun of him. You would expect a man that had this much intellectual heft would get a little bit of credit for his, the vastness of his learning, if nothing. But he was mocked. The offense of the cross. The offense of Christ. But then, some said, we'll hear more about this positively it may have been some people that really wanted to absorb it, think about it, come back later and, and do some more discussion on this matter. This sounded interesting to them. It could be that it was, they were just putting it off. Like almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Much learning, Paul, has made thee mad. and I'm afraid that's where a lot of us live, right there. We don't mock the gospel. We don't mock God. But we just sort of put Him off. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed and the accepted time. God has fixed a day of judgment. And He's fixed a day of salvation. And the day of salvation is today, if you will hear His voice. Harden not your heart. And then there were some that believed. They formed really kind of a nucleus of a small church plant. Paul stayed there in Athens probably about four or five weeks He had Dionysius, the Areopagite, who believed, tradition tells us, he went on to become the first bishop of Athens. There's a woman mentioned. She very likely would have been one of those from the synagogue, or one of the God-fearing women like Lydia was in Philippi. Who knows? But I love the way the the group is is, uh, enumerated. There's a man who... Tradition says became the pastor. There's a woman, a leading woman of the society. Then there are brothers, and then there are others. If that's not a little church congregation, I don't know what it is. Where God's got his people. Paul will later be very discouraged when he gets to Corinth. And the Lord will say to Paul, hang in there. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep declaring the truths. Because I have much people. I have many, many people in this city. God has appointed them to salvation. and In order for them to come to faith, they've got to hear the gospel. In order for them to hear the gospel, Paul's got to preach the gospel. So he's encouraged to preach the gospel. Not much is made out of the church at Athens. But it was a people that God had called to Himself a number, a congregation, a people of God, a family. Don't you want to be part of that family, that group, and enjoy that unique, special place in the kingdom of God? Come to Christ. Embrace Him. Trust Him. Believe in Him. This is, this is the whole will of the Father. You want to do the works of the Father? Here, here it is. Believe in Jesus, whom the Father has sent.